Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands, arms wide open, and praising Him, lifting up holy hands. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise be to your name, Lord. Praise be to your name. Hallelujah. Thank you, praise team, worship team, musicians. God bless you. Kids ministry, you're dismissed in Jesus' name. And youth, you go to your classrooms. And if we continue to be packed out like this, we're going to have to start the youth and kids ministry downstairs and do worship and uh, the overflow. Hallelujah. Praise God. We have uh, tried to keep everybody in family groups. And we have a healthy distance among those who are not related. And that's good. And thank God we've had no infections. Hallelujah. We give God all the praise. Amen. Hallelujah. Months now. Months, months. We thank God that uh, he's kept this out of here, uh, this plague, if you please. But, uh, you know, we still have to contend with other plagues. The plagues of sin in our heart that afflicts and affects each and every human being. The Bible says all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. That's all. That leaves out no one. Hallelujah. And we have to deal with that. Praise God. And that's what church is all about. Why? Because we're on a journey. We're going from here to there. It's a different place. And some of the things, or actually most of the things from here cannot make it over there. And we can't make it over there unless we're ready for it, unless we're prepared for it. And what this time is, every time we gather together, it's a time of preparation. It's a time of, of getting our mind focused and our heart aligned. Why? Because everything comes down to the heart and mind. The heart and mind the two most important organs of your body in the, in the natural sense. That's the same in the spiritual. And the devil knows that in the world that he uses, the devil does, fights against this mindset or hearts and minds more than anything else. There's a battle going on for your heart and mind. And it rages each and every day. This is why Proverbs 4.23, and I'm going to read from that scripture today to continue last week's message on issues of the heart, asking where your heart is. But I believe there's no better scripture than Proverbs 4.23 to put it all into perspective where Solomon the wise, through the inspiration of the Spirit, writes, keep thy heart. Now keep means to guard it. It's a guarding. Guard your heart. Keep thy heart with all diligence. The other place that the word diligence stands out is Hebrews 11, 6. Amen. For, for God hears the prayers of those who diligently seek him. Diligent. And that means painstaking effort. That's the definition of diligence. Painstaking effort. In other words, you just can't get to heaven by wishing for it. You're going to have to be intentional about it. You have to make your plans to go there. You have to take steps to get in that direction. You don't coast there. You don't float there. You don't just cast your boat out on a current of the ocean and hope you'll get to Timbuktu. 
Who knows? You may end up there, but not if you don't set your compass for it. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. That's both spiritual and physical. The heart is the very center of our life and our activity. And the scripture has a lot to say about it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for this word you have left us, whereby it is indeed a light, a lamp under our feet, a light under our pathway. Lord, we pray that you would lead us and guide us on this path. Open our hearts and our minds and our understanding that we may understand the scriptures and apply it to our own lives. For we're not here to judge anyone. We're here to proclaim the truth that each and every one of us might apply it to our hearts and judge ourselves and judge it rightly so that we can repent and come to you asking for help and strength to change. For you're calling us to transformation beginning with our heart. Bless your people today. Give us strength and encouragement and above all understanding and wisdom. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. Thank you for being patient. Praise God. Hallelujah. Keep thy heart with all diligence. Last week I read to you from Deuteronomy 6.4, the most important scripture uh, in the Hebrew mind is the Shema, this the, the hero Israel. Shema is the first word of uh, Hebrews, um, rather Deuteronomy 6.4, here. Shema means here. And the Hebrews, uh, when they pray, they begin with the Shema. It's Shema, hero Israel. Shema Israel, Adonai Elenehu Adonai Had. It is hero Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And verse 5, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And in the New Testament, when Jesus was asked the question, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus replied in verse 37 of chapter 22 of Matthew, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and all thy mind. Notice in both, there's the mind and there's the, there's the heart. The importance of the heart and mind and soul to be wrapped up in God and in the kingdom of God. God loves us. That's a given. And if you don't know if God loves you, all you have to do is look back at the story of Calvary and see how much he loves you. And how much he loves me. He died for you and I. Before we were ever born. He died for us. Knowing that we would need salvation. Knowing that he will provide the remedy for sin. Knowing that he will provide the pathway. That will lead us straight to heaven. Into his presence. And into his, into his fellowship throughout eternity. And so the heart and mind. Plays a very important part in our walk with God. And we have to keep our mind and our heart clean. Our mind and heart focused on God rather than on the things of the world. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I mentioned to you 1 Corinthians 2.9. It says, but as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, 
neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. You understand that God is indeed preparing a place for you, but it depends on your love for him. And if you love him, you're going to do certain things. Love makes demands. Love demands sacrifice. Hallelujah. Love demands intentionality. Love demands a relationship. Love demands consistency. Love demands commitment. Love demands faithfulness. I'm talking about love. I'm talking about the issues of the heart. God cares about the heart. And we talk about it all the time. Well, God doesn't care about the outside. He cares more about the, the heart. Yes, he does. Because if the heart's right, everything else on the outside will match too. You see what is in the heart by looking at people on the outside. Not just how they look, but how they act, how they talk, where they go, what they do. Everything issues forth from the heart. That's why Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's all about the heart. And uh, God is preparing a place for you and I. But a heart has to be right. And that's what I'm concerned about, especially in these last days before Jesus comes. There is a great spirit of deception in the world. There's a spirit that has been in, uh, at work uh, in the, with his insidious message from way back, beginning in the Garden of Eden, believe it or not. But more so than ever is today, that there is a great deal of deception. The Apostle Paul said, uh, characterizing the days in which we're living in, the last days, he said, in the last days, says, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. At no time in my lifetime have I ever seen so much deception and lying and deliberate misleading that I have today in 2020. But understand, it's not just attributable to men and women of ill will. It's attributed to a spirit that has been working to this, this point of climax that we're coming to. The world has a, an appointment with destiny. And that appointment is rapidly upon us. Uh, and we're standing on the threshold of that climax uh, uh, the great tribulation uh, is the catching away of the bride of Christ. Uh, and where our heart is, uh, is of utmost importance uh, if we we're going to be ready or not. And so we have to not only be ready, we have to stay ready. And everything has to do with how we handle the issues uh, of our heart. Our love for God is what validates our service for God. Amen. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, I can speak the tongue of angels. I can have faith to move mountains. I can do all kinds of great things for God. And if I have not love, I am nothing. Right. If love is not a motivating factor for coming to church, if love is not a motivating factor for singing a song or playing our instrument or giving our offering a sacrifice, if love is not the motivation for living the life we live, that we're missing it. 
Because God is looking at your heart. He's looking at if your heart is in it. I addressed it last week that if your heart is not in anything, it's a miserable condition, a miserable situation. I told you about jobs I've had that I did only because I had to do it and I had to have the money to pay my bills. And you do it too. Amen. But your heart is not in it. It's the hardest thing that you do to get up every morning to go to a job that your heart is not in doing. And it's the same thing with serving God. And God's looking at our hearts. He's looking to see if your heart is in going to church. Is your heart in serving him? Is your heart really in wanting to go to where he is? And you have everything to do with it. If you're waiting for God to change your heart, uh, amen, well, uh, you may be waiting a long time. But you have to be open to him working in your life. And he does do that. But it will take a yielding response on your part. You see, I've said it a long time. We all know God is love. God is love. The scripture defines him as love. Not that he has love. He is love. He is love. Hallelujah. And because of his love, he extends grace, unmerited favor to us. And salvation is based on grace. Based on, hallelujah, based. In other words, it's his love for us that extends unmerited favor, and he makes conditions of salvation available to us. And these conditions of salvation are not arbitrary, it's not whimsical, but it's based upon God's own nature, his holiness. Amen. We just can't come to God any way we want to and determine our way to get there and our conditions because our really coming to God and our relationship with him is based on his nature. And the Bible says because he's holy, he's as a consuming fire. And since we're sinners, you get into his presence without the proper protocol and the proper protection, you will evaporate. And God doesn't want to kill anyone. The Bible says it's not, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to, to the knowledge of truth and all should come to repentance. That all would come to a place where they'd be covered with that protective covering, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. To cover you. She could come into his presence as if you have never, ever sinned, as you have never, ever done anything wrong. But that takes faith on your part. His love extends grace, gives gracious conditions whereby you can accept his terms or you can reject it. And if by faith, if you accept it, then you can apply it to your life. In repentance, taking his name on in baptism, in which time the blood is applied to your soul. And then he fills you with his spirit, which the Bible says is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So he gives us love. Why? So we can fulfill the greatest commandment. See, this is why John, in his letter in 1 John 4, 19 says, For we love him because he first loved us. Now, that's very important to show you that God is working on your heart at all times and my heart, trying to get, you to, the, to get us to a place where we always respond to him in love and that we can keep our heart focused on the right thing and in the right direction. That's important to God. I mentioned to you, God is love. Yes, he is. But for us, love is a learned behavior. It's a learned response. Remember that. If you learn nothing else this morning, remember this. Amen. Love is what you learn. And God showers us with his love. Hallelujah. He, he, he talks to us in his love languages. 
a special touch of his spirit, words of affirmation. He gives us his touch. He gives us gifts. Hallelujah. And Gary Smalley's book on the five love languages is nothing but really a revelation of, of God and how he communicates with humanity and how he goes about doing good. Jesus' ministry on the earth was nothing but going around doing good. He healed the blind. He healed the leper. He, he, held, he, he healed the, uh, the lame man. He, 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 he provided for people that couldn't have provision any other way. And, and he, he, he helped people restore relationships. He went about doing good, the apostle Peter said. He was preaching to a multitude of 5,000 people at the temple porch. Jesus was a man who went about doing good. Why? Because doing good is one of the love languages of God. It's one of the dimensions of his revelations of his glory. He does good even though when you and I don't deserve it. And when you and I know that we don't deserve it, hallelujah, we come to a place of repentance. So the Bible says, for the goodness of God leadeth to repentance. Need not to be repented of. God does good things for you, not to affirm your lifestyle, but to get you to change the direction of your heart. To get you to fall in love with him. Happened to Peter, as you remember, I mentioned his story. Jesus came into the boat and he said, hey, I want to use your boat. And his fishermen friends were with him and uh, they're washing their nets. They had worked all night, couldn't catch a thing. And, and uh, Jesus used the boat because there were so many people on the shoreline. He was being pressed, he was being pressed into the sea. He got into the boat and he started teaching and preaching. When he got done, he tells Peter, all right, now let's go back out. Let's go do some fishing. Peter said, my Lord, we, we toiled all night. We haven't caught anything. But nevertheless, at thy word, we'll go out. They went out. They let down the net. So you know the story. Huge draught of fishes. And he, uh, Peter had to call for his friends, other fishermen, come and help us. And they began to sink. They, that's how much, how much fish they got. And what did Peter, what was Peter's response? He dropped on his knees because of the goodness of God. He dropped on his knees and he said, Lord, depart from me for I am a sinful man. With Peter, all it took is one great miracle. But with some people, it takes more until the heart is totally focused with God. And their mind and heart aligns in unity to focus on God and the things of God. After that one event, the Bible says Peter and his brother and his other friends, they followed Jesus. They left their nets and they followed after Jesus. Henceforth, you shall become fishers of men. And they said, wow, Lord, if you can do that with fish, you can do that with people. You can do that with anything. Hallelujah. We're going after you. Hallelujah. The issues of the heart. God uses acts of kindness and goodness to touch your heart and mind so that we respond in love. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise God for we love him because he first loved us. I mentioned to you the story of Israel uh, in Egypt and how that uh, they were slaves for 400 years. It was time to bring them out. God called Moses, ordained him to be the leader, uh, to lead them out of Egypt. And uh, uh, the Bible says that he uh, first went to, uh, to call the elders together. He told them what God was going to do. And then we see really, in essence, a microcosm of what happens even today as there is a battle going on for the hearts and minds of the people of God. It was true back then, it's still true today. 
And back in Israel, as, as slaves, they had a slave mentality. They were captives for 400 years. Uh, didn't know how to think like free people. And God had to deal with that. They had a problem believing. Now the leaders, the elders, uh, uh, weren't, no, weren't, a, weren't a problem. He called the elders together. Moses told them, well, this is what God told me. He appeared to me in the wilderness, and here are the miracles that he showed me, and I'm showing you. Amen. He put his hand in and came out leprous, and he put it back in, came out healed again just like that. He had a staff. He put it down, turned into a snake, and then he picked it up back. It's a, it's a rod again. It's wood. God has power to do that. The elders believed right away, and the Bible said they lifted their hands, worshiped God, bowed their head, and said, we're ready to go. That's just the 12 tribal elders. But then when he went to the people in Exodus 6, he tells them the same thing he told the elders. In fact, you can read it for yourself, about eight verses, and the Bible just basically uh, recounts what, what God told Moses to tell the people. Thou am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm your, the God of your fathers. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to give you uh, the promised land. I'm going to give you a land that you had, didn't work for, a land where you didn't build cities, fields you didn't plant, orchards you didn't plant. I'm going to give you all kinds of things, amen, because you are mine, and Israel's my firstborn. Right. Hallelujah. Why do you say firstborn? Because Israel as a nation was the only nation in the history of the world, still is, that was ever created by God, by God for himself for a specific purpose. When he called Abraham, he called Abraham to create a nation out of him for a specific purpose. He didn't do that to any other nation. He called Abraham to show the world that there was only one God, and his name is Jehovah. And Jesus is a derivative of that. Yahashua, was it Jehovah's salvation? That's what Yeshua Hamashiach is in Hebrew. Hallelujah. To show the world there's only one God and his name is Jesus. Call him his firstborn. And I hear his descendants, about a million and a half to two and a half million strong after 400 years of slavery. God brought them to Egypt to multiply them, to protect them in that time period. But the people weren't ready to go. The Bible says that they were so crushed by the cruelty of slavery and the, 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 the bondage that they were in that the messages went over their heads. And so God, for the next nine miracles, began to do one thing after another. He turned the water into blood. And he had flies. He had lice. He had, he had darkness of three days over the land. Darkness, the Bible says, you can feel and through those miracles, by the time he got to the ninth one, Moses came to the tenth one. He says, all right, on the next one, we're leaving. By that time, when Moses said, put the blood on the side posts of the doors of your dwellings and the blood on the lentil, then, you know, that's the sign of the cross, by the way. Hide behind the blood of the lamb, amen, of the first year that you kill, put the blood on the side posts on the lentil, and then and that death angel will come, and, and you're not going to be harmed. But in Egypt, all the firstborn will die. And it happened. And on that night, as you know the story, Israel left. The Egyptians were urging upon them, get out of here before we all die. But the point is, every one of those ten miracles was a, an act of kindness on God's part to show his people how much he cared about them, how much he loved them. And at each and every turn when a miracle took place, their heart, turned one more notch toward God until by the time he came to the 10th one, their heart and mind agreed and their body and soul was delivered out of Egypt. And that 
principle carries on over to the New Testament as well. Uh, Paul applies it uh, uh, when he speaks of uh, uh, the, the Jewish people in his day who had rejected Christ and, uh, and yet they're still clinging to the Old Testament uh, teachings of Moses even though Moses himself said that uh, God will raise up another prophet like a Nini, and he says that you better hear him or you'll be destroyed. Uh, but yet when Jesus came, the Jewish nation rejected him because their focus and their heart was not on the Messiah, wasn't on God, it was on their temple, and it was on their rituals. It was on their religion and not on God. There's a big difference between the two. And so... Paul brings out this point to the Corinthian church about the Jewish people that, that have tried to confuse the Christians in their city there about, about having to become a Jew first before you can even ever become a Christian. So you have to circumcise first before you can be baptized. You have to keep the law of Moses before you can become a Christian. And Paul said, no. He's got a lot of arguments on that in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and, he, and also the book of Hebrews. He kept fighting that issue in his day. That was the number one thing. But those principles still apply to us today, and it's important. And now when it talks about Moses and how these Jewish people were looking at the law of Moses even after Christ died and, and, and he was buried and was resurrected and the church was growing in mass, there were Jewish people still clinging to their religion and the temple was still standing. That wasn't destroyed until 70 A.D. So he's telling the Corinthians uh, that, that Moses uh, uh, put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished. In other words, when Moses went up to the mountaintop and received the Ten Commandments, that, that he was up there for 40 days, in the presence of God, his face began to glow. If that holy, special glow came upon Moses, and when he came down from the mountaintop, the people saw him and said, Whoa! You look like a ghost. They were scared to come close to him. And they asked him, put a veil on you because you look scary, man. And so they put a veil upon him so they could not see the glory of God. And that's the issue. They'd rather look at the veil than the glory beyond the veil. And so that's what he's telling to the Corinthians. The Jewish people who still remain that day who rejected Christ, they'd much rather look at the veil and not at the glory. And so as a result, verse 14, but their minds were blinded for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Another time, in other words, every time they read the Old Testament on the Sabbath day, there's still a veil on their mind and their heart too. Watch this, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, the heart, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And the next scripture says, for where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. See the progression in the Old Testament? Hallelujah. There's, when the heart is aligned, then the Spirit comes, takes them out, parts the Red Sea, great miracles take place. And in the New Testament, I told you the application last week, that, that when, when, a, when a person's heart is fully engaged and is in unity with the mind and the heart all focused on God, 
That's when the deliverance comes. That's when they get the Holy Ghost. That's when the revelation of oneness of God comes. That's when their fullness of deliverance from whatever binds them takes place. That's why the heart is so important and what direction it is facing. And God is looking for that heart. God is looking at our heart. If you want scripture, here's 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to shew himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Whose heart is perfect. Now that heart perfect does not mean that it's sinless, you're complete, you're good, you know, the best person. No, no, no. It's talking about perfectly focused on him. Perfect towards him. And, and his whole earth, you know what God is doing today? Sunday 2020? He's looking. He's looking down the aisles. He's looking the whole earth right now to see whose heart and mind has reached the point and place within complete agreement in heart and mind. And when it's in agreement, it's focused on him. He's there. He's there to do a miracle. He's there to give you a revelation. He's there to deliver in a mighty way. That's why it's so important, hallelujah, to have a heart that's perfectly focused on him. And here's the deal. You and I in this day of, of the 21st century, there's a battle for our mind and soul to get us to take our focus away from God and put it on the things around us. And every day it's a battle. And you have to make sure that each and every day your heart is fully engaged and focusing on God and loving God and the things of God and not the things of the world. Because your heart can turn away from God into the other direction. In fact, uh, 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4, talking about Solomon, uh, you know, Solomon the wise, he, uh, for political reasons, married many non-Israeli women, which God forbade. Look what happens to him. And listen carefully to what the result of his behavior is. 1 Kings 11.1. 1. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Strange meaning, you know, foreigners. Although, I'm sure some of them were strange. I don't know. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, ye shall not go into them, intimately that is, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. Be careful who you fall in love with. Be careful who you allow yourself to fall in love with. Because they will either turn your heart towards God or away from God. This is why the Bible exhorts us not to marry someone who is not of that same faith. You're unequally yoked. Why? Because they'll constantly, continually war against you to try to give up what you believe in. It's just the nature of things. But Paul also says, hey, if it pleases the unbeliever to stay, and they're fine. That's great. Your relationship is sanctified. It's fine. You don't have to divorce anybody just because they're an unbeliever. That's not it. God wants to preserve the marriage union. But in this particular case, God was angry with Solomon because 
you know, he, he, he married these women that he was not supposed to. And verse 3 reveals a lot about his carnal nature. He said, and he, meaning Solomon, had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his, watch this, and his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4, and it came to pass when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. You see, your heart is like a, a door on hinges. It turns whichever way you want. Hallelujah. Amen. That door back that turns up and closed. Hallelujah. And you can be that way with God. You can focus on God. You can, you can open your heart towards Him, or you can close it towards Him and focus on something else. And that's very important. In fact, uh, the Scripture tells us and admonishes us in Colossians 3, and in verse uh, 1 and 2, uh, it tells us, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> oh, hallelujah, <coughs> that uh, you who are born again, uh, <coughs> set your heart on things above. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. <coughs> oh, excuse me, I'm reading Philippians. I need a Colossians. <coughs> hallelujah. Too bad our overhead doesn't work as good as it should right now. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. See, that's the diligence. That's the, that's the action part on our part, if our heart is right. If you're risen with Christ, if you're born again, and have partook of his resurrection, how? By being filled with the Spirit. That's the resurrection power. Which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, verse 2, listen to this, it's a command, set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ, meaning we're dead to sin, we should be dead to this world and it's pull and it's lull and it's deceptiveness, but we should be fully focused and engaged on God so that our heart gravitates towards Towards, gravitates towards him and not towards the world down here. And I think that is very, very, very important. I think if, if, if we know and we learn this lesson and learn how to fight this battle, it'll help us to regain, if not maintain, our victory in Christ. It's an important element of living the Christian life. See, John the Apostle said in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, you can't serve God and mammon at the same time. You see, you'll love one and hate the other. That's what Jesus said. And we have got to come to a place where we're not double-minded. It's not like we love this and love that too. You can't fully love the world in its ways and love God in his ways as well. Because you'll be torn, you'll be divided, your emotions are mixed. And that's what got Adam and Eve in trouble in the first place. Hallelujah. See, uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, and I'll come back to this thought, but that, that the world swung away from loving God and focused on him a long time ago. And in Romans 1.18, it tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness, 
because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. All you got to do is look around and see the order in the universe and look at the revelation of God and what he created, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, this is the point I'm coming to. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, their thinking, their mind, and their foolish heart was darkened. When you know God, you don't acknowledge him. When God's very actively moving in your life and, and you don't yield to it, you don't accept it, then there's a consequence. Your mind can be darkened and you, you turn away and you go to the things that your flesh really desires. Uh, and you're going after what's good because it feels good to your flesh and not what is pleasing to God. And that's exactly what happened to our first forefathers after Adam and Eve. They chose the world. They chose their carnality and their fleshly desires rather than fellowship with God. As a result, their carnal mind was darkened. Their foolish mind was darkened. And uh, they had vain, empty imaginations. That's how we came in this world to be where we are today. Romans 1.21 says, Yes, they knew God. This is the New Living Translation. But they wouldn't worship Him as God even or even give him thanks, and they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like, the result was that their minds became dark and confused. I like that word confused, because that confusion is what got Adam and Eve in trouble in the beginning. As you know, as, as, as Lucifer, Satan, in the form of the serpent, came and, and tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, and God commanded them, don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of, of, of good and evil. That's the only thing they couldn't eat of good and evil. Why? Because up to that point, the only thing that Adam and Eve knew was just good. Just good. Good, good. Imagine. I mentioned this too, I believe, last week. Amen. Uh, living in a world where you only think good thoughts. You have absolutely no knowledge of evil. You have no knowledge of lying. You have no knowledge of killing or murder or war, uh, sickness, or all those things. You have no knowledge of that realm whatsoever. All you ever think about is good. Remember that. That's what it was like. It was just good. And God's trying to get us back to that place. To understand that that world is different from this world. And we got into trouble when we mixed good with evil. When that mixture resulted from good and evil, when it the moment Eve took a bite, the moment that took, you know, touched her lips, she, her mind and understanding became confused and darkened. Why? Because all of a sudden, you see, they're confused about what is right and what is wrong. How did that happen? Well, here's the point. No one can define what good is without having God as a point of reference. Atheists. Philosophers in the world, professors who try to say in their own definition, in their own mind, what good is. You cannot define what good is unless you have God, a holy God, a perfect God, whose truth and righteousness determine what good and right is. 
if there was no God, then there's no definition for good. The only definition for good will be whatever I say is good or whatever you say is good. And whatever we determine to be good is really based upon my own desires, my own fleshly desires and lusts. And that's really what's happened in the world. You see, this is why the Americans in such a big trouble today. We took prayer. We took God out of the schools and out of our educational system. Where are we today? We're at a point where we have no knowledge of God. We have lost a point of reference of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. The very fact that we ever say the word good, it means that we believe that there's a God. If an atheist says, it's not good for you to do that, well, he's already lost his point of reference because, you know, he's referring to God. He's no longer an atheist. It's a contradiction in terms. What is the, what is the atheist based his definition of good on if there's no God? What's well, only his truth? Well, if your truth, uh, you know, is, is, is what's, what's good, if, if your definition of good is good, well, I have my own definition, therefore, which is, which is supreme. So then it comes down to which one of us is the strongest. And this is why the people in the world who argue for their worldly truth, which is not based on God and his nature and his word, is based on their feelings and their lusts, it's right for me to love anybody that I want because love, it's love. Doesn't matter. You can love your cat. You can love your dog. You can love your horse. But you're not supposed to marry it. But for me, it's so right. Maybe. But it's not good. Maybe good for you in your eyes. But what are you basing your good on? Are you basing it on your lusts, your own feelings, your own flesh? Or are you really basing it on the holy nature of God and his truth, his word? See, this is what Satan wanted to do with Adam and Eve in the beginning. That's what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve became confused because now they lost the point of reference and all they had was each other and all they had was their flesh and their carnality to determine what, what was good. And, you know, because of that, that good, that they felt it was good, and they saw the, the, the presence of God lift from them. They sewed together fig leaves to, you know, they put loincloths on each other. And when God saw it, you know what? He said, that's not good. The Bible said he killed animals. The Bible didn't say he killed it, but he took coats of skins. And he means he had to kill it to, get the, to shed the blood and get the, the skins off the animals and put it on Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness because their good was not God's good. They based their holiness on their own imagination and thinking, not on God's nature, not on God's point of reference. And there's a confusion, and this is where the world is today. The world is confused. The further you go from God, the, the, the more confused you are about what is right and wrong. And this is why the Western civilization is in trouble. For, for, all, for years and years, for centuries, as long as they kept God of the New Testament as the point of reference for good, there was a great deal more of civility. Now, I won't even say civility, but because there was always wars, because it does, you, you don't, just knowing good and evil does not eliminate human nature out of the equation. There's people that always have you know, ambitions and, and pride and, and lust and thirst for power. That's always there. 
But, but as for, for, for the most part, people had a, a, a certain understanding of the difference between good and evil. And, uh, and because of that, uh, the Western world became civilized to the point that it could make great advancements. And notice when you take those elements away, society crumbles and goes back to its old Gentile nature before they had a point of reference as God. And so with a confusion comes great chaos. And that's where, that's where we are today in this country. But you and I, as the, as the children of God, must never, ever lose God as our point of reference. And we must always guard our hearts. Amen. Hallelujah. And we see that in the beginning, you know, uh, when, when Satan came to tempt men, it was most on an individual basis. But then in Genesis 10 and 11, we see a man by the name of Nimrod coming to the forefront. And he comes in Genesis 11. He builds uh, a, a city in, the, uh, in Mesopotamia, in the land of Shinar, the, the land between the rivers. And he builds Babylon. He builds a city, and he keeps people together, and he builds a, a, a tower that reaches up towards heaven. Amen. Again, it was total rebellion against God because God told them, go throughout the earth and multiply, replenish the earth, fill it. Amen. Be fruitful. And they did not. They stayed in one place. And then on top of that, to, to prevent another flood from, if another flood came, they said, we're just going to climb up the tower, and we're going to make our own way to heaven. So this spirit kept dominating the world. But what really happened was, was that, that Satan used this, this system of state government to systematize an attack on God's order of things. Because now Satan was through the governments was able to create a system whereby the world could be a gauge of whether or not individual behavior was right or wrong. It created a peer pressure, if you please. And society, as we see it, can exert its pressure on the way we feel about right and wrong and how we live our lives. Hallelujah. And so what we believe is evil in here is not exactly what the world out there believes. Some of the things that we consider evil that God permits, or the, the government of our world permits, Right? To permit drunkenness as long as you don't hurt anybody. You can basically take drugs and, you know, and then who's going to bother you? A lot of them if you just keep it to yourself. So when you sell it, that's a different story. That was all that was the message. You know, just do, do it yourself and don't, don't worry about it. It's all right. It, what, what's, the, what's the harm if you don't, you know, you don't hurt anybody else? Same thing with immorality. You just do what you want. Do, do what feels good. What the government permits is not permitted by the, the rightness of God. And so the things that we consider right are not necessarily what the world considers right. And yet the world, which is used by the enemy of our soul, tries to exert that pressure to try to get us to conform in our mind and our heart to accept what they proclaim to be right instead of what God proclaims to be right. And so we have to be very, very much aware of this in this last day. And this is Babylon. That's what Babylon is all about. And the enemy is the one who formed it to establish our own, its own set of values and guidelines which determine the acceptability of man's behavior. Amen. 
So we need to pay attention to what the Word of God says. This is why I'm coming back to 1 John 2.15. John says, love not the world, the system of Babylon. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And watch this. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doth the will of God abideth forever. So that's why it's important to love the right things, because what you love will determine how you act, what you act upon. If you love the world more than you love God, you're going to be acting upon your loves rather than loving God. It comes down to that. You know, you can tell what a person loves by what they talk about. I was with somebody just the other day and had lunch with them and talked, and they were talking about their new job a lot. I mean, that's all they talked about. That's all they wanted to focus on, mostly. They loved it. You could tell. And there's nothing wrong, okay, with some of these things. But, but, it's, but it, when it, it's only wrong when it, it takes you away from loving God the way that you should. And that's here in, is the danger. Now, in this verse 15 that I read to you, love not the world, the world. The Greek word for that, word for that is cosmos cosmos. That's a very interesting word. It, it denotes the ordered whole of the universe. Everything, you know, the, the physical universe apart from God. The whole mindset, every, the whole ordered universe. It's the planets, it's the earth, it's the, the gravity, it's the, the whole system, the solar system, the galaxies, uh, the whole universe as it's ordered apart and separate from God. It describes the corporate consciousness of the people of the world as they bind together in corporate rebellion. That's what cosmos is all about. It's the world. It's the cosmos that binds together the unbelieving world. It's the global mentality that remains an invisible yet a powerful force in the lives of mankind. It's this world that we must not allow for us to love more than loving God. But it's this world that competes for your love and your attention more than anything else. And so what the apostle is telling you and I today, don't give in to the lust of your eyes. Don't give in to the lust of your flesh. Don't give in to the pride of this life. Amen. We are just here temporarily. Listen, we're citizens of another world. Amen. Hallelujah. In fact, I just this verse, I woke up with this verse yesterday uh, from Philippians 3.20. It says, for our conversation is in heaven. In other words, our behavior, our citizenship is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You understand that we're citizens of heaven. We are aliens in this world. This is not our home. I will take. I can take uh, any number of uh, of different citizens uh, who, uh, of another country who work here as temporary workers. When they come here, they speak their own language, they eat their own foods, they dress their own way. Hallelujah! And then they constantly call back home to their relatives. They send money back home. They support that the old country. Why? Because they're not citizens here. They do whatever they have to do to get what they need, but their focus is back home in their homeland. Right. You understand that we're just aliens in this world. We're strangers. Hallelujah. Right. Uh, we're just passing through. In fact, Peter said in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, 
after he tells that we're a, a royal a priesthood, a chosen generation, a peculiar people, etc. He says, he says this to the Christians, you and I. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Hallelujah. We're in this war. We are to be strangers, not only as, 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 as citizens here in this world, but, but in our mind and in our hearts. And this is what I want my focus on more than anything. Your mind and heart. How, how, how attached are you to this world versus that world? You know, when, when you want to go to vacation somewhere, most people will get a travel brochure and look at the pictures. Wow, that's so neat. Well, they see something online. I see some pictures, you know, the, uh, on the screensavers, all the different places. So like, wow, that is so beautiful. I'd love to go see that. And, you know, Disney World, different places, hallelujah. You see, man, I want to go see that. I want to do that. And then you make plans, and then you, and then you go. Hallelujah. How many of us took time to really consider where we're going from this world? Have you really thought about where you're going? How do you know you'd like to go there? How do you know you'd like it when you get there? You see, God is trying to get us ready for that because over there, it's going to be nothing like it is down here. And if you love the stuff down here more than what's coming over there, and this is why the scripture right from the very beginning is so important. In the first Corinthians 2 9, I has not seen, ye are not heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God prepared for them that love him. Why is it important? Stand with me. I'm done. I'm, I'm coming in. Finally, brethren. <laughs> Hallelujah. See, most of the things that we find fun, exciting, and the flesh here in this world will not be in heaven at all. The Bible tells us there'll be no more sea. So there's no, no fishing over there, no boating, no sunning in the sunshine. I'm sorry, I, I, honestly, think about this. I woke up one day just last week and I thought about this. Oh my goodness. And I really began to run through and I wrote down some of the things. And I said, this is incredible. I, I, this helped me in my own mind to put things into perspective. And I said, wow. I said, I got to share this with the church. But I said, okay, no more sea. So there's no boating, there's no fishing, you know, and whatever activities you like. I'm going to hit a lot of them this morning, okay? Let's just think about it. And I'm not saying that any of this is bad. I'm just saying to gauge ourselves where our, our love and affection is. And have we considered enough of the place we're going, heaven? Are we ready for it? Or are you going to be disappointed? Yes, there will be no more war, sickness, dying, crying, etc. But imagine this, there will be no television in heaven. No movies. There's no cable. There's no CNN or Fox News. They won't even have the Dove Channel. They won't have it. No computers, 
Brother Corey, no sound room in heaven. Praise God. But their instruments, hallelujah. We're going to have music, that's for sure. Amen. And I don't know what kind they're going to be, but I know that God designed musical instruments. He designed Lucifer to be a worship leader. We look at the book of Ezekiel and how he designed the most beautiful angel God ever created. The Bible said that in him pipes and tablets were placed. Musical sounds were created. He was a worship leader. That's why people who are worship team and musicians all have to be careful in their attitudes. Isn't that right, Sister Andrea? I'm not preaching yet. I'm real loud. It's just what it is. Musicians have tempers and they have attitudes. Not, more, not any more than, than, than people in the pew. They can have attitudes too. But when you're in the front, when you're out there performing, you have to keep your heart right and making sure that your praise is to God and not in the flesh trying to please people. I'm sorry. It's the way it is. All right. No television. No computers. No internet. No video games. No golf. Except the great one that separates the bosom of Abraham from the man on the lake of fire. That's a different golf. Hallelujah. No video games. No smartphones. You're not going to be able to browse all day long anymore. You're not going to be able to call anybody. You won't need to. There'd be no Facebook, no Google, no Twitter, no Instagram. Now I'm going to hit you where it really hurts now. There'd be no Longhorn Steakhouse either. I'm talking about these places we like to go to. I like to go to Longhorn now and then. Lone Star. I love it. Red Lobster. McDonald's. All of that. Chick-fil-A. But they're a Christian. They're gonna be a chick. Gotta be a Chick-fil-A in heaven, Nick. But I don't see it in the Bible. It's not there. There will be no automobiles to drive. The cars you love. You won't have the house. You won't have the things that you have down here. No Asian foods, no more Chinese or Mexican. Oh Lord, help us. I love these things. But that's why I began to think, oh my goodness, where's my affection at? There's no movies, no movie theaters, no bowling alleys. You'll never see an R-rated or any kind of movie, no porn whatsoever. Maybe no casinos, no baseball stadiums, no football stadiums, no hockey stadiums. There'll be none there. There'd be no bars, no liquor stores. There'd be heaven. But the Bible said, you may miss those because you love those in the flesh. But eyes have not seen, nor ears heard the things that God has prepared for them to love Him. So see, you have to use your deductive reasoning to look around this world. Look how beautiful it is. Look at the forests, the trees, the mountains, the seas, the oceans, and the great watering holes, the beautiful places to fish. And the God that created that is the one who's preparing a place for you and I. 
so much more grand, so much more beautiful, so much more better than anything you could ever experience down here. But the question is, is your heart over there or is it over here? And we've got to separate the two. We've got to focus on that. Clearing our mind out from the evil and keeping it pure and good. Now do you understand why Paul wrote to the Philippians in 4.8? Finally, brethren, and I'm quoting him now. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, of good report or lovely or any virtue or of praise, Think on these things. Why? Because he's trying to bring our thinking back into alignment as we had it in the garden. Only good, not mixed with evil. He's, that's why, now you say why David said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. The question is, what are you filling your eyes with? What are you filling your heart with? Are you filling it with things that would increase your love for this world? Or are you filling your senses with things above? Because what you set your affection has everything to do with what you choose to do. I can't make you. And this church is not in the business of forcing anybody to do anything. But Jesus says, whomsoever will. It's up to you. For those who love him. My simple question today is, do you love him? How can you love someone you don't know? You may not know him. You can get to know him. You can know more about him than you know right now. I, can, I promise you. There was a time in my life I knew very little about God. My grandmother was Greek, or, uh, Greek Catholic, and that's a, a subsidiary, so to speak, of, of, the, of the affiliate of the Roman Catholic Church. And my grandmother taught me that every time you go past the church we were on a bus and everything in a communist country mind you and we were limited what you could do religion was a liability right the time we buy a church you know make the sign of the cross when you pray have a crucifix between your hand i still got that crucifix of memento because years later i went back to my first trip to hunger 18 years after i left the country when my grandmother died in that little box i used to keep it i still had that crucifix there and i brought it with me I still got a home as a memento remind me where I came from. When I only knew God as somebody on the cross. And I prayed with that crucifix. I prayed for my mom and my dad. That's all I knew. Baptism, all I knew, that when the priest baptized, he poured water over my head in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. And years later, at age 22, I was in the Air Force. I was seven years in the Air Force. A tall African brother, African-American brother was my dental tech and in a dental chair working on my teeth. He said, have you ever been baptized in Jesus' name? I said, no. That's where I first heard. And you know what? I got to learn more about God. Week after week, I joined myself to Pentecostal church. There was 1,200 where I was. And one night, the Lord touched my heart, touched my heart. I reached that tipping point where my mind and my heart was aligned. You know what I did? I came to the front. That was August 24th, 1975. What's today, 20th? Four days. I have my 
45th birthday, spiritually. I was baptized in Jesus' name. And since that time, I've been growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this is. This is a journey of getting to know him more and more and more. I would encourage you to check your heart. If you want to go to heaven, where's your heart? Do you love him? Do you know him? If you want to know him more, I want you to lift your hands right where you are. Close your eyes. Don't worry about anybody around you. We're not going to ask anybody to come from. We're not, we're not doing altar call now because of COVID. Your seating place is your altar. I want you to seek the Lord. Hallelujah. Seek the Lord. And tell him, Lord, I want to know you more. I want to know you more so I can love you more. Lord, help me to love you and that world better than I love this world here right now. Help me, Lord, to prepare myself to that place that is eternal, that place where there's never a night, that place where there's no more sickness and no more war, no more crying, no more heartaches, no more of the troubles and trials of this world that I have down here. Oh, God, touch my heart. Clear my mind. Lord, I repent of my sins. Cleanse me, oh Lord. Solomon and the ten tribes of Israel out of twelve rebelled against him because his father raised the taxes so high and ten tribes came to him and said look lower the taxes and we'll serve you you don't believe him you know the story Elbow asked the elders the elders told him the old advisors do as they say and they'll stay with you and he asked his, his contemporaries, the young advisors, and they told him, oh, no, don't tell him that. Just tell him, you know what? Well, you thought my dad had high taxes. It's going to be even higher than ever before. And so the ten left him. 
made a bad decision. You know why? Second Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14, the Bible says about Rehoboam, and he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. He lost the kingdom because he did not prepare his heart by asking God and praying. You know, we may be children of the kingdom, but we can lose out like our whole bone if we don't prepare our heart to love him. We can lose the kingdom by not preparing our heart. I would exhort you today, prepare your heart. Jesus is coming soon. Lift your hands and say to him, Lord, help me to be ready. Brother Hunt. All over this house, can we lift our hands unto him? Heavenly Father, we heard the word here today. I pray, God, that we would take this opportunity in this coming week, Lord, to prepare our hearts for you, Lord Jesus, if we haven't done already. Pray that our hearts and our minds would be aligned with what you have in your word, Lord God, that we wouldn't set our affections on things of this world, God, because there's troubles and sins and, and problems in this world, Lord God, but we are bound for a better place someday. You promised in your word, God, that you've been, you have a prepared a place for us, Lord Jesus. And I pray, God, that we would not uh, be lax about preparing our hearts, Lord Jesus. Aligning our affections with you, God, and in your word and our relationship with you and not on things of this world. Not things, God, are so away from you. I pray, God, you would keep us in your hand as we leave this place. As we go out to the world, as we interact in this world, God, that you would keep you close in our hearts, always in our hearts and in our minds, God. That we would align ourselves with you, Lord Jesus. Be prepared for that day when you return. We anxiously await your return, oh God. We look forward to that day, Lord Jesus' name. Keep us safe, I pray. Bring us back in the next appointed time. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray here today. And let the church say amen. Amen. Hallelujah. You are blessed here today. Go ahead and be dismissed in Jesus' name. Come back. Remember, 640 on Wednesday night. We'll be streaming for general conference. And uh, 730 for prayer online. We'll see you the next time. In Jesus' name.